Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today, he grew up in a small town in Oregon, but when he arrived at Howard University, he was really home. Welcome filmmaker, activist, author, Jordan Theory to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the filmmaker, activist, and author, Jordan Theory. His documentary, The Black Fatherhood, offers context and conversation in an honest exploration of fatherhood in Black America. He's also working on another documentary. It's called Grandma's Roses. And that documentary expands upon the familiar notions of grandmothers as centerpieces and culture keepers of domestic life by also detailing their contributions outside the home as thought leaders and workers and community activists. And also, and recently he wrote a children's book for the A Kid's Book About series called All About Systemic Racism that Oprah included in her best holiday gift guide. Welcome, Jordan Theory, to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's it's great to be on. It's an honor. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited. I am so excited. I um, Before we started recording, Jordan told me that he had his first vaccine yesterday, um, mm-hmm. which is just going to let everybody know, because this episode will live forever in the world, <laughs> where we are in time on the planet when this was going on. So it's 2021, and Jordan Theory had his first COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm I'm excited to get that second shot, and I feel like I'm getting my my freedom papers. Exactly. <laughs> There's light at the end of the tunnel now, so yeah, it's very exciting. And I'm, honestly, I'm getting I you know I got it much earlier than I thought I would be able to. I didn't think I'd be able to get it until later in the summer, so it was a pleasant surprise. I have you here today because you're kind. Uh, publicist reached out about the book and it and it gave me an opportunity to kind of deep dive into your work beyond this incredible children's book. So we are going to end up there, but I feel like I would really love to go back a little bit and do what I do with all of my treasured guests and talk a little bit about, um, I don't know, your origin story as a creative uh, and a creator. Mm. Um, sure. And I know you're a little foggy and your arm hurts yeah. from the shot, but <laughs> if you could tell me a little bit about where you grew up, who was in the house that you grew up in, um, that would be a wonderful way to start. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a small community uh, called Aloha in uh, Oregon. It's a suburb of Portland, Oregon. Um, and I grew up with with my parents, both my parents. Uh, I come from um, a multiracial background. My dad's African-American, my mom's white. 
Um, and uh, I have one brother. And the community I grew up in at the time was majority of white community. And there was very few uh, black families that lived there. Um, that's, you know, still the case, but it's changed a lot. The demographics have shifted a lot. Um, but that, that was the, yeah, it was a, it's a nice community. It's just, you know, a good place to grow up. Um, and uh, I had a lot of, uh, you know, really important and powerful experiences as a minority growing up in that community um, that have shaped my life and, you know, probably been a part of what led me to do the work that I'm doing and writing uh, Kids with a lot of Systemic Racism too. So were your, were either of your parents from Portland originally? <clears throat> no, my parents are actually both from a small town in Illinois, Western Illinois called Galesburg. Um, and they were high school sweethearts. So they moved to Portland um, in 1982, right before Mount St. Helens erupted, um, or actually that week. And, uh, and then had me a year or two later, so. And that community in particular, what led them to move there? Um, well, as an interracial couple in the 70s in Western Illinois, still a very rural, very conservative place. Uh, and it was, a, I guess you could say, a hostile environment for them. And I think for my mom in particular, um, so that was one motivation for them to move to the West Coast. And um, they had heard good things about Portland and it being more, more tolerant. Um, and so that was one reason. And the other reason was just family. And there was just a, a pretty significant migration from you know, the Midwest to, to the West Coast cities for job opportunities and, and the like. So I read on your, when I was reading sort of descriptions about your first film, one of the things it talked about is how being a basketball player was sort of um, your entree onto a lot of different, um, into a lot of different communities, onto a, a lot of different, you know, basketball courts and, and allowed you to meet a lot of different people. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder, first of all, were you a good basketball player? Well, I, <laughs> I thought I was a good basketball player. I mean, I, you know, I played in the, the you know, AAU, the all-star kind of special teams and stuff like that. Um, but I was always really short for my age until I got into college. So I, I had that barrier, I think. Um, but, but yeah, I played all the way through high school um, and just a little bit in college. Um, so it was a big part of my life. And I think one of the things that you're referring to also is that um, being a basketball player and being a part of the basketball community gave me access to the black men in my community as role models, uh, as kind of, you know, uh, other kind of father, uncle type figures. Um, and that was, a, that was a space where we, we, you know, we're black men gathered, right? And we're together. Um, and so my dad being a basketball player and being active as a coach and as, as a, you know, recreational player gave me access to just a lot of other really great men. Um, so, I had that multiplier effect that I think you get when you have a dad around and when you don't, you, not only are you missing out on, on like sort of that direct father relationship, but you don't necessarily get all the other men that come around with having a father, well, you know, all your, 
his friends and, and, and whatnot. So I was, I was supported by a pretty significant village of elders growing up um, and largely because of, of the basketball community. And so can you talk about how that might've been in part why you went ahead and, and made this film that's been incredibly successful and well-received and, and, you know, to this day, I mean, it keeps going and going. So what was the, um, what was the moment for you when you were like, I'm actually going to take this thing that's been so meaningful to me and I see what it's meant for me and I see what the absence of that has, how that's impacted people that I love in my life, sort of, when did you decide, and I'm gonna make it into a film? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say when I was um, coming out of my undergraduate program and I got a major in journalism with a focus on um, documentary storytelling, and I wanted to, I was very eager to like make my first project on my right. own. Um, and I had just moved from Oregon to Washington DC to go to graduate school at Howard University and was seeing really, uh, you know, a complete opposite <laughs> scenario being in Washington, D.C. compared to, to Portland, Oregon, um, and having a lot of the small instances that I saw and experienced in Portland um, at a magnified level in D.C., at, at which at the time was still a majority Black city. Um, and so just seeing the, the, the poverty and the struggles um, of, of the community uh, at that level um, was one thing that made me ask a lot of questions as to why, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the sort of, I think maybe in some ways a myth is like the, the reason for all this struggle in the black community is like the, the father isn't there. And that's not a, a, a cause, it is a symptom of, of racial injustice um, and systemic racism in this country. Um, but that was my starting point for, that was the inquiry that I started with, right? It was like, what is this deal with the Black fathers in America and the role that they play? And um, with a significant number of African-American children, two thirds, um, technically born into a single parent household, you know, what is the cause behind that? And so that's, that was my starting point. And along my journey of six, seven years making that film, uh, came to understand all of the systemic causes of uh, the sort of the fragmentation of the Black family um, and the things that, you know, undermine the uh, stability and the strength, um, such as, you know, mass incarceration, um, you know, the crack epidemic, um, the uh, lack of opportunities in the South uh, for employment for Black men. Um, so, and, and I traced that story all the way back to, um, to West Africa and, and pre-slavery um, uh, as an American institution, I should say, and just looking at what the family structure looked like in West Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and how that structure and that tradition and that orientation around what family means actually has been a strength of our community and helped us adapt and survive slavery and all of the other um, injustice, right? Is that our, our concept of family is, is extended, it's um, interdependent. Um, and so, you know, that that is something that, that nimbleness, I guess you could say, and that flexibility is, is a huge attribution to 
um, how far we've come and, and what we've been able to accomplish as, as a people. And it's, I mean, obviously, you know, your father was incredibly um, involved in your life and your family. Um, was he also one of those dads who became a surrogate dad to a lot of people in your life? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And not just black kids, um, kids of all races. Uh, as someone who was, you know, has been coaching basketball for 30 something years, um, he's sort of has had, he's had the opportunity to play that role and has played that role for dozens of kids, I'd say, um, over the course of my lifetime. Um, and that's something that's just embedded in me, I think, too, is like a, the role, the responsibility of men in the community is to sort of, you know, be there for, for young people. Um, and so my dad uh, was a fantastic example of that. And I think there's a lot of people that can testify to that fact. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a huge inspiration for me as well. So what was your sort of, I mean, my hope is that people will find the film after they hear this conversation and you'll be able to tell mm -hmm. them ways in which that can happen. What was the thing that sort of, because we all have an idea and we feel like we have a sort of intellectual understanding of, of how history impacted today and will continue to impact the future. But were there things in the making of that film that really surprised you, even though you thought, I have so much knowledge, I have book knowledge and I have lived knowledge um, in the making of the documentary? Because I feel like all great documentaries, there's the thing you set out to do. And then what makes them amazing is the surprise thing that happens, mm -hmm. the unexpected that wasn't mm -hmm. in your storyboard or so. Can you talk a little bit about as a filmmaker, what that was for you? Yeah, sure. So I was 23 years old. I didn't have that much knowledge. I probably, <laughs> I had less than I thought I did. That's for sure. Right. Right. Um, I, I started the project basically thinking, I just want to show good, uh, kind of example black fathers just to counter the narrative of the deadbeat black dad that was right. the initial concept for the project um, and then I kind of quickly realized um, that that's cool and all but I'm actually not addressing the elephant in the room which is why is there this stereotype from a deadbeat black dad right mm. um, and why why is there you know why are there so many households disproportionately uh, where a black father isn't present um, and so that's when I shifted the focus to more so look at the historical factors, the root causes of, of this phenomenon that we see and experience in, in, in our community. Um, and I just, I really went back kind of chronologically, you know, uh, the first interview I did around history was around mass incarceration. And the next one was around like sort of the, the crack epidemic and, and heroin. And, and then the next one was like, you know, and sort of moved back and looked at the impact of um, fighting in World War II, fighting in the Vietnam War and what that did to black men, um, especially World War, uh, Vietnam War, a lot of men came back addicted to drugs um, and, and that took them away from being able to provide for their families. Um, and, you know, a lot of black men died as uh, a lot of other men did in World War II, uh, but they went over there to fight for uh, sort of other folks' freedom, hoping that it would help African-Americans here uh, achieve freedom and kind of come back to the same racism, um, the same injustice. Uh, and so all of that was like so enlightening to me. And 
this film is, is, is yes, it's a documentary project, uh, but really it was like a rite of, rite of passage for me mm. um, to sort of learn my history and to have an opportunity, kind of an excuse to um, talk with some really, really uh, brilliant elders um, and scholars. Um, and and it, I mean, it, all of it is about myself, you know, the whole thing is about like really my experience. Sure. I, it's not what's, what the film is about per se, but the project was really f about fulfilling my own questions um, and understanding and, and my own cultural identity. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> the last interview I did was the interview with Dr. Wade Nobles, who talked, of, who was able to really talk about the family structure, family traditions in West Africa, because I didn't want to sort of slavery to be the stopping point of how we were looking at this, because yeah. it didn't provide any semblance of like hope and return to a positive reality. You, do, you know, do you know what I yes, mean? Yes, very so much so. Going, and being able to provide that example. Of can how you talk work. a little more specifically about, I mean, obviously that could be, you know, a, a seven hour TED talk that you could mm -hmm. lead, but, but can you talk a little bit about what the relationship was to fathers in the community pre-slavery when you talk about mm -hmm. sort of going back to that what what and you talked about sort of the interconnectedness mm -hmm. within the community um can you just describe it a little bit yes um so jomo kenyatta was the first prime minister of independent kenya uh talks about this in his book facing my kenya it's a good example and it's an easy read of sort of what family and village life look like. Um, but I think a few core things are, are that the role of uh, men in the community and the responsibility and uh, I guess you could say authority uh, that you had was not just that of over your own children, but the other, the children of the other men who you went through the rite of passage process and ceremonies with, right? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of like the equivalent today would be like, you know, maybe your high school graduating class or something, right? So you had um, the same kind of authority and the, and the children knew that these people had the same kind of authority. So they would listen to you, um, but you had the same responsibility to take care and care for um, those children as if they were your own. Um, and, and I think the same thing on, on the maternal side. Um, and so they had that sort of, that, that village, I mean, it's kind of goes back to that. It takes a village piece, right? Sure. Um, so I think that's one component. The other component is, um, and traditionally, you know, the family was all structured around the children and, and what the children need and the, uh, the, the, I guess, spiritual philosophy was that all children are born with a certain gift and it is the role of the parents in the, in the village and the community to cultivate that identify that and pull that out of them you know wow. what I mean? so yeah. so that's just another uh, example um and i think all of the other things that come along with interdependence and unity in a kind of community context um, uh, generally apply as well in terms of the roles in the community and you know um, how nothing is 
really owned. It's a, it's all shared, that, that sort of stuff. You talked about, you know, growing up in Oregon and, and this town that you were in and sort of, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it felt more outsider than insider. Um, and then you go to Howard. Mm-hmm. Was that wonderful? Yeah, I mean, it was um, incredible. It was powerful. It really was uh, transformative for, for me. Um, and it wasn't all, you know, rainbows and <laughs> uh, rose gardens and, and right. everything like that. It was um, obviously there was some challenges there, but, uh, you know, I, I don't like to necessarily always kind of perpetuate the idea that Howard University is the best historically black college that we have in this country, because I think it sort of has a a negative impact on all the other historically black colleges and universities. Okay. uh, Who I think they do a lot of really fantastic things and there's a lot of incredible people that come out of those universities. The the reputation is that it is the Mecca and the, it, it, it holds up. Right, it, it lives up to that in many ways, largely because of the people that come through that university um, are just, you just have some just incredible minds. And mm-hmm. more than anything, I was really inspired by the other students that, that, that were there um, and all of their dreams and all of their aspirations um, and what they, what they brought with them into that experience, um, their knowledge of their community um, and all of the unique subcultures uh, within the African diaspora um, was just uh, just beautiful. I mean, to to be in that space where it's not just African-Americans, but you have a lot of African students, you have students from the Caribbean, you have students from Latin America, um, you know, it really, blew up any notion I had of what it meant to be black mm-hmm. um, because what I the notion that I had coming out of Oregon was so narrow um, was so narrow and so it, it it's it's just a one-of-a-kind experience it's um, I, I don't know I don't have the words it's magical I mean I don't want to be too cliche but it but really it was a phenomenal place and helped shape who who I am as a person. And I think I, I got there just at the right time in my life. Um, and so I'm grateful to, to be able to have gone to school there and to spend the time with all the amazing people that I, that I did and people that helped me make that film, The Black Father Project. Yeah, the, the, the documentary um, that I also talked about is that, I, I mean, I imagine your grandmother would be impart the inspiration for, you know, when you talk about at the end of the day, it's sort of about me. I mean, the, the ideas for so many documentaries are because we're, we're chasing a story in our own mm-hmm. life sometimes. I mean, there's mm-hmm. all kinds. Um, did your grandmother, was she someone who stayed in the Illinois area? Did she come to mm-hmm. Oregon? Where, where was she geographically in your life? Geographically, she was in Illinois for the majority of my life until 2014 and from 2014 to 2018 when she passed she was in Las Vegas that's where her and my grandfather wanted to I mean they had been retired but they wanted to kind of 
you know, end up in Las Vegas and enjoy the sunshine and be closer to their kids who are all on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but yeah, I spent uh, my, all of my summers with my, grand, with my grandparents in Illinois. And um, again, that was a very different experience than being in Oregon too, uh, because I was, uh, in Oregon, I was largely surrounded by um, white people and other uh, sort of people within the Asian community, within the Pacific Islander community, within the Latinx communities. Um, and so in Illinois, I was surrounded by family and I was surrounded with well, Black people, you know, pretty much. Um, and so that was a, a, a completely different experience, but it was affirming in who I was and where I came from and um, gave me that sort of confidence um, to, you know, just walk in, walk in my own shoes and, and be confident about who I am and, um, and, and, and really celebrate and honor family. Did you wish at the end of each summer or whenever you would go or maybe holidays, did you wish that you lived there? Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was definitely times where I, I didn't want to go. There was times where I think I asked my parents if I, what if I, you know, lived here with my grandparents. They were not grandma, have yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, they loved you too much. Yeah. yeah. They weren't going to have that. Yeah. They, and they left for a reason, but, um, but absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because I had uh, so many cousins in the town that, you know, I was so close with and they played sports. So I was like, oh, we could be on the same basketball team, mm -hmm. you know, all that sort of stuff. And life in some ways felt a little easier just because it's a small town. Um, but, um, but yeah, I always went back to, to Oregon. Well, all of this leads me to um, this book that you wrote uh, all about systemic racism um, that I had the privilege of reading. And, you know, it's, it's called a children's book, but uh, it it has stayed with me uh, and affected me. And it's, I mean, the whole series of books, it's so well curated and they're, they're beautifully designed and each topic is so, um, you know, there's one called All About White Privilege. There's one called just All About Racism. I mean, it's a whole series of amazing books touching on such difficult topics for grown-ups to talk about. But I just have to say, for someone who wasn't a children's book author, from what I know, until this project came to you, I can't imagine anyone, I mean, your, your prose, I mean, you're a poet, the way you grappled with such difficult, difficult subject matter, I can't even imagine how you began, just to be perfectly honest, to try to find bite-sized ways to talk about the thing that we are all grappling with in this new way right now. Um, so I could go on forever complimenting you because it's just so powerful. And it's like this little tiny book that is mind-blowing. Um, so someone came to you and you said yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which was a big yes when you think about the impact? Yeah, oh, I didn't even think about the impact or anything like that when I was asked. I mean, it, you know, it's funny because this wasn't that long ago, but it seems like it was so long ago. It was only 
a year and a half, two years ago, maybe mm-hmm. year and a half. Um, but uh, the story behind how it came to me was that the the founder of a kid's book about his name is Jelani Memory, and he's a friend of mine from high school. Are you saying um, Memory, Jelani Memory? Yeah, Memory. Uh huh. What a beautiful name. Okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful name. Um, and uh, you know, we played basketball together growing up in that same community I was talking about earlier, um, and so he has had a really incredible career himself and founded uh, a tech company and um, and then went on to sort of start a kid's book about really, which was like, I need to talk to my kids about race and there's not really anything good to help parents talk to kids about race. Right, to start the conversation. So I'm going to like write a kid's book and just see what happens with that. Um, and, you know, he did it and he liked it and he was like, I think this could be a thing. Um, and so he started a kid's book about company and it's it's taken off right now. Um, but not long after he published his first book and, and I think published a handful, um, he was starting to line up authors for different topics and, and you know, wanted to really lean, fully lean into this, to this company. Uh, he reached out to me. Um, we had worked together, he helped me with my film Black Father Project a little bit. Um, and so, we had talked about maybe doing something on slavery or something on a kid's book about black history. Um, and then this is like fall of 2019, the pandemic hit, um, things kind of, you know, there's a little bit of setback. Um, and then the murder of George Floyd took place and, and Breonna Taylor in the, in the uprising. Um, and uh, we, you know, reconnected and given everything that was going on, um, he had a, the really smart idea to uh, do a follow-up to his book on racism and do a book on systemic racism um, so that maybe people can try to make sense of these injustices and why they continue to thrive in an era where a lot of people don't think of themselves as racist, in an area where racism is harder to see, to point to um, than it was you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, but still like it's all over the place, right? So that's where the idea for doing a kid's book about systemic racism was born. So how do you begin? I mean, I feel like there's a template for their books, a little, maybe template's not the right word, but there's a, mm-hmm. a form, a yeah. Yeah, it's a very straightforward form. I don't want to give away any trade secrets here. <laughs> <laughs> but- um, Get your pencils out at home, people. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, basically, we just we you know get together in a in a virtual room uh, this time um, and workshopped and workshopped a book. And basically, uh, they're super supportive and and saying, just you talk and we'll write. I think the question that they asked me was like, how did what are the first ways that you experience systemic racism? So that's so I think for a lot of the books, the model is to introduce yourself and talk about your connection to the issue, right? Um, And so that's what I did. And then I went on to explain what systemic racism is in the the most simple way that I possibly could, which was incredibly challenging, Um, but I think it turned out okay. Uh, And and we had a draft in a a day. And then I did a couple rounds of revisions um, within a few weeks. And, uh, and my part was done. 
pretty much until it came out. <laughs> and then Oprah was like, I like this. Yeah, yeah. And That's she was exciting. Like, I like this, I guess. And, and so she selected a number of books from a kid's book about company and, and mine was, was one of them. And I said, honor. And um, that was, yeah, that was super exciting. Was it, um, was it something that, you know, you mentioned earlier journalism. I mean, you're a writer, obviously, uh, and an, and an investigator, right. In the way you mm -hmm. kind of go through the world. Um, what what is your hope one is at the most basic level i hope that this book helps parents teachers adults talk to kids about racism and systemic racism and um it really i just want to add that it really should be coupled with some of the other books um, or similar books um just because this book is about systemic racism and explains what systemic racism is, but there's so many other things that come along with that. Yeah. So the book about white privilege is a great pairing, especially if, if you're white, um, but also the book about shame is very important too, because a lot of the shame that we experience as people of color is rooted in systemic racism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the list goes on, right? I mean, uh, the, the book about belonging, um, and so uh, that it was the, the most direct kind of goal. I just wanted to be a helpful tool and mm -hmm. I, I want to contribute to the dialogue when, however I can, right? Um, I think we're just barely, barely scratching the surface on our conversations around systemic racism. Um, and, you know, I, I always say in, in these interviews that it's, you know, this is going to be a, a generational, it's going to take generations for us to really see any real significant changes and may not be in my lifetime. But I think that a lot of the conversations now are around like diversity and equity and inclusion, which is good. Representation is needed. And, you know, I think we have to fight for that. Um, but I also feel like some people are missing the mark. Um, because you cannot really, you're not going to be able to really achieve um, uh, alleviating systemic racism without really shifting uh, how our economy works, you know, without really looking at economic justice, um, without looking at patriarchy um, and sexism. Um, I mean, it, there's just so many, that's why it's systemic, because it's, it's both rooted in a system, but it operates as a system, all these interconnecting systems of oppression. Um, and so uh, I just, you know, I want to continue to lift that up because uh, the, the well-being and the, the opportunity that people of color um, need and deserve to, to be able to thrive and do well um, isn't going to change through just racial representation, it's really got to be fundamental restructuring of our society and how, um, what we value and what we prioritize as a country. Well, I feel so incredibly honored to have had this time with you today. And thank you for sharing uh, yourself with my listeners and for the beautiful, beautiful art you continue to put out into the world and for your voice as 
an activist and an advocate for, for those who don't always have the, the megaphone that they deserve. And, um, and also that it's the day after you just got your vaccine and your brain is foggy and you're exhausted and your arm hurts and you don't feel well, you could not have been more articulate um, and beautifully generous. And Jordan, I'm so grateful to you. And I just, before I let you get into bed and take some Advil, um, tell me uh, how people can find your incredible work, the book, the films, your future projects, and all of the public policy and advocacy you do every day. Yeah, um, that's a, so. Uh, my social media outlet of choice is Instagram, and my Instagram um, handle is Jordan Theory, uh, J O R D A N T H I E R R Y, and you can kind of sift through there and find a lot of the stuff. Um, but also, my website is Dream Chase Media, and you can um, learn about some of the projects there. And then um, to watch and get access and learn more about the Black Fatherhood Project, you can go to BlackFatherhoodProject.com. Um, and you can learn about the new project, Grandma's Roses, and uh, that should be coming out um, later this year, hopefully. And so, so yeah. Thank We're all so looking much. for it. Be well, get rest, and thank you for the incredible art you put out into the world. It's really, um, you're an extraordinary person, and thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much, and I was very excited to, to meet with you. I mean, um, you know, you're, you're my favorite Seinfeld episode. You're you're in that one. And so I was <laughs> telling all my friends, I was like, ah, you remember Lady from the Gym? It's uh, true. So, <laughs> it's true. You're talking to Joyce from the, Joyce. From the health club. <laughs> yes, yes. So no, that's super exciting. And I know you're doing some, some other things I've seen as well. And, and then um, your partner, I mean, I loved him and there's Jackie. So that's, that's super cool too. So you, Well, I can't wait till we can. I will. And, and someday we'll all be, uh, next time you're in New York, please look us up. We would love to get to hang out with you in person. So that'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, one more shot. And then if everyone we know gets the shot, maybe, right. maybe we can do it. All right, right, Jordan, keep in touch. I want to hear about everything you do for the rest of your life. <laughs> Thank you. So okay. Thank you so much. Have a great all right. day. Okay? You too. Bye. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and I hope you've enjoyed the previous 200 something episodes which I have loved making every single one. If you've been thinking about contributing to the podcast, it couldn't be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com/donations and it's all laid out for you there. I would be forever grateful, but mostly I'm just so happy to make this show for you and I can't wait to share next week's guest. Until then, stay safe, be healthy, and thank you for listening. The episode was edited by Nicholas Clark. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov 
careers.